Hey church, we are in our new sermon series called The Mind of Christ. And as Missy said earlier, this actually comes from a sermon content survey we did with you guys last year. And actually, pretty much all of our sermon series this year come from that survey. But specifically in, <clears throat> in this sermon series, each topic we'll be discussing comes, comes from something that you guys suggested, something that you want to learn more about, something that you want to uh, talk about. Uh, what's unique about this series, though, is, uh, is that this is about how to think like Jesus. 1 Corinthians 2 says, you have the mind of Christ. So you can know spiritual things. You can think about spiritual things. You can talk about spiritual things. If that's the case, though, why do so many of our conversations that surround spiritual things end up being divisive, end up being uh, into quarrels or arguments or, or aren't done with gentleness and respect? If we actually are going to operate in the mind of Christ, gentleness and respect, humility, love, peace, those things should reign uh, in our conversations. Those things should guide and direct how we interact with others, how we talk about these things inside the church and outside the church. Problem is, we, we tend to not be able to talk about these things inside the church very well. And so we're going to start off with theology today, just theological doctrines in general. And what I want to do through all of these series, sorry, through all of these topics, is not tell you what to believe. That's not the goal here. The goal here isn't to tell you what to believe. The goal isn't to say you need to, here's, here's the four positions and this is the one that I think is best and these are the ones that I think are worse. That's, that's not the goal here. The goal here is to teach you how to think so that you can do that on your own because you have the mind of Christ. I don't need to give you the mind of Christ. You have it, 1 Corinthians 2 says, if you're a follower of Jesus. So, if that's the case, how do you tap into the mind of Christ? How do, you, how do you use that? How do you appropriate the mind of Christ as we talk about these issues? I think if I, can, if I can show you how we do that, then you'll be good to discern that on your own and think through these topics on your own and, and do so with gentleness, respect, and love because that is really what's fueling the mind of Christ for us. So, uh, we're in 1 Peter today, 1 Peter 1, 13 through 17. And uh, the context of this is, is embracing exile. It's, uh, we preached a whole series on this last year and, and what it means to embrace exile, right? And these, these are believers he's writing to. These are followers of Jesus who uh, are in exile in this world, who recognize that their place is in heaven, that they're citizens of heaven, but, but right now they're in this world. So how do we as followers of Jesus live in this world, embrace this exile that we're in? Like, like in Jeremiah, he says, he says, you know, seek the welfare of the city, right? He says to build and to plant and to start families. How do we, how do we do that while also living for Jesus? That's the context of first Peter here. And so when he starts off in verse 13 and he says, therefore, He's saying, therefore, because that context, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, so not letting, uh, not letting things affect you too much. Like, for instance, your emotions make you, uh, can make you go to the extremes. He says, don't be like that. Be, be sober-minded. Like, and sober, like 
opposite of, of drunk, right? So have control of your mind. Be, be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So here he talks about preparing your minds for action. And if, if you see an older translation, it's like girding up, up your loins, uh, you know, the, the loins of the mind, essentially. So preparing your minds for what? To, to do something, for action. So here's the thing about theology and theological doctrines. Orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. So right theology leads to right practice. Okay? How do you know if you have right theology? Well, you're practicing the faith right. How do you know? And, and, and uh, if you're practicing it wrongly, well, then that says something about your theology. So, I'm going to do a little exercise with you guys. Uh, and just off the bat, uh, we'll, we'll give you a minute uh, on, on, on screen, but you'll probably need to pause it. So, uh, this is an exercise that uh, will take longer. It could, take, it could actually take hours. So, the point of this exercise is not for you to, to figure it all out with your R3 right now. The point of this exercise is to show you how important it is to figure this out and how it affects how you think about theology and theological doctrines. So this is called theological triage. If you think about a, th a triage unit, like in a hospital or, or on the battlefield, right? It's, it's, a, it's a unit where people are coming in with injuries, with sicknesses, with, with um, uh, they're suffering in some way. And the nurses, the doctors, they do a triage. It's, it's like an emergency room, right? You go into the emergency room and, and they say, well, what's wrong with you? Well, if you tell them uh, you have chest pain, they're going to send you back right away and get an EKG, right? If you, if you tell them, oh, well, I have a cut on my arm, they're going to say, hey, wait in the waiting room because you're not as, your injury isn't as uh, vital as, as uh, or, and potentially life-threatening as, as something, this other condition or this other injury. So, uh, with theology then, if we're going to do theological triage, it's which doctrines are the most important? What is core to us? What are the things that, that are so vital that if a Christian does not believe that thing, it actually means they're not a Christian? Okay, That's the core. That's core theology. And then there's second order doctrines and third order doctrines and maybe even, maybe even down, down below that. So this exercise, and what I want you guys to do is we're going to put a bunch, of, a bunch of these on the screen. We're going to put 20 of them on the screen. And uh, as, I, as I say them, we'll put them up on the screen. I'll explain them very briefly so that you know what I'm talking about here, what these doctrines uh, talk about. Um, and, but... Uh, what I want you to do is do some triage, do some theological triage, and just figure out which ones are the core. So you don't have to do second order and third order, but which ones would be core and which ones would you put underneath core. That's going to tell you a lot about your theology. It's going to tell you a lot about your practice and why you do things the way you do. Um, and maybe, just maybe you'll see, wow, I've been putting some things that are core or sorry, I've been putting some things that aren't core into core theology, and I've actually hurt people because I've talked, I've made these things core, and they're not actually core. You know, I've elevated this up to the level of, of that, and it's actually not as important as that. So, 
Let's give you the doctrines, then you guys can figure that out together. Hope you, hopefully you have fun in your R3. Hopefully it doesn't break out in quarrels and fights and, and stuff. I don't think it, I don't think it will. Um, uh, but hopefully it also leads to uh, robust discussion. Uh, maybe not all in this weekly rally time, but throughout uh, your discipleship time with your R3 leader as well. Okay, so here we go. I'm just going to name the, name these one by one. We'll put them up on the screen so that you can pause the video and, and you can see it there too when they're all up. Um, there's 20 of them. So, uh, number one, uh, well, they're in no particular order. So, the first one, uh, view of creation, right? Six days creation, uh, gap theory, uh, evolution, macroevolution, microevolution, um, day age theory, uh, all, all that stuff, right? There's so many views of creation. So your view of creation, cross and resurrection. Okay, Jesus died on a cross and he raised three days later. Uh, view of gender roles. Okay, we're actually going to talk about that in a in a few uh, in a few weeks, um, or maybe maybe even next week. Um, uh, I think it's next week. View of gender roles and how you see uh, what's masculine and what's feminine, or what uh, is male and female. Uh, eschatology, uh, the study of, of the last things, of the end times. Election, uh, you know, are, are we chosen in the faith? What is salvation and, and how does it work out? Uh, does God choose us? Does he choose us in Christ? Um, you know, is it unconditional? Is it conditional? You know, all, all those things, okay. Baptism of the Holy Spirit. What does it look like when we receive the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, or maybe even you know, bat, baptism of the Holy Spirit, do we receive the Holy Spirit? Uh, but what, but oftentimes the, the argument is, is around like, oh, what does that look like? Um, what is it accompanied with? Uh, things like that. Uh, view of spiritual gifts, right? Cessationism, uh, not sensationalism. I hear people say that a lot. Cessationism. What has ceased? Maybe some gifts have ceased. Or do we have access to all the gifts? What are the spiritual gifts, etc.? The humanity of Christ. Is, is Christ fully human? Uh, the virgin birth was, uh, did Mary conceive uh, Jesus as a virgin? Uh, view on abortion. That one's pretty self-explanatory, but, you know, it talks about, like, uh, the value of life and things like that. So, uh, and inception and conception and all that. View of the atonement. We'll actually talk about that in a few weeks. Um, but the, it could be, like, um, limited atonement, unlimited atonement, uh, five theories of the atonement, seven theories of the atonement, three theories of the atonement, etc. Church governance, how a church is supposed to be structured and how it's supposed to be governed. The trinity. Okay, we'll talk about that in a few minutes uh, briefly. Uh, inerrancy of Scripture. Okay? View of heaven and hell. Like, are they real places? Do we go there? What does it look like? Are you there for eternity, etc.? View of communion. That's the Lord's Supper. That is transubstantiation. That is uh, no substantiation. That is... Uh, that, that is, is it a memorial? Is it a celebration? Is it, you know, what, what is your view of communion? Um, consubstantial, I mean, there, yeah, we, we can go on about that. Uh, divinity of Christ, God, uh, Jesus being fully God. Uh, what is, and, and, and what does that look like? Um, view of baptism, pedo-baptism, child-baptism, uh, uh, immersion, sprinkling, uh, when do you baptize? Hamartiology. This is uh, the the theology of sin and what and you know what what we know about sin. So, what does uh, what does sin do for us? Can we lose our salvation if we sin again? Does Jesus' blood cover all our sin? All, all those things. Um, 
view on LGBTQ+. So what is your view on that? Um, and, and everything that, uh, that accompanies that. So those are the 20. Uh, there's way more, okay? We're just gonna give you those 20. Uh, so take those 20, and all I want you to do is figure out what you guys think should be core theology. Again, we're gonna give you a minute on the video, but feel free to pause it um, and, and hash this out in your R3. All right, I hope that was a fun exercise for you. I hope you learned something about yourself, about maybe the traditions uh, you've adhered to. I hope you have figured out maybe a little bit more about what core theology is and what should be core theology. Remember, those are things that make, that if someone believes those things, then they're a follower of Jesus. They're a Christian, they're a believer, right? So if someone doesn't believe those things and if, or if they have a differing opinion on them, well, then that's, that. Uh, that's where you get into aberrant theology, okay? Or those things shouldn't be core. So, uh, let me just give you what, what I think in this list is core theology. Um, uh, view of creation. No, I'm just kidding. I don't think that's... <laughs> we, there's so many differing, differing views on that, so I would put that down, down below. So, virgin birth would be an example. The Trinity, core theology. Uh, the divinity of Christ, the humanity of Christ. Really, there's only, pff, I don't know, five or so on here, maybe a little bit more. Cross and resurrection, right? Those are all core theology. Uh, I don't know if I'm missing any of them on here, but I, I think that's, yeah, I think that's it. Everything else, it's like, well, uh, you can have differing opinions on it, and you can still be, be a Christian. Um, so, uh, and some of these things you might say, oh, wait, Really? Like, I, I don't know if that's, that's right. Like, can someone disagree with me on, um, on heaven and hell and still be a Christian? Uh, well, we're actually going to talk about that in a few weeks. So hold on, hold on to that. Uh, but those, those five that I just mentioned, I think there's one. I, may, I don't think I missed one. Are, are the, those would be core theology. Now, here's the thing, Paul, sorry, Peter goes on to say in verse 14, he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed, so do not be shaped and do not adhere to the passions of your former ignorance. So he's saying you were ignorant before, now you have some knowledge, uh, but as you walk forward in that knowledge, because guys, this is what Paul says. Knowledge tends to do what? Puff up. 
Knowledge tends to puff up. He says, love, love does what? It builds up. It edifies. So puffing up where you have something that looks like it has substance, but it has no substance. You poke a hole in it and, and all that comes out is hot air, right? But when you build something up, uh, there's, there's uh, strength there. You know, Missy had the triangles or the pyramid earlier, right? Uh, there's a foundation. There's a foundation there. And, and so he says, don't adhere to, your, to the passions of your former ignorance. Uh, and, and this word for passions here, you know, we're talking about like your deep desires, your longings, what you covet. That's what your passions are. And so think about this. What, what did you covet? in your former ignorance. Before you knew Jesus, in, when you were in your old self, what did you covet? What did you desire? What were your passions? Oftentimes it's, well, how about to be right? You know, we're talking about theology here and theological issues. Are you bringing your view on theological issues that aren't core into the conversation and your passion from your old self, from your former ignorance to be right supersedes your love for the other person. Has that happened? Does that happen? Is that happening? Uh, how about to be 100% certain? You know, I, I had this guy one time in my house. We were, had some people over. This is early on when we moved here. We were watching football. And it used to be like this way to just get everyone together and watch football. And this guy, didn't, he wasn't part of our church. He was part of another church in the city. He just, he just came, came over and we were happy to have him. And we're, we're there to watch football and just build relationships. And he starts talking about, because uh, we baptize with immersion, he says, what we're doing is wrong. And it was out of the blue. We weren't even talking about it. We were just talking about, <laughs> we're watching the football game. Um, last thing I want to talk about is my view on baptism. And, uh, and I have a PhD in theology. And I don't want to, but I don't want to talk about that while <laughs> I'm watching football. Um, uh, now, we can talk about Jesus all day, uh, but my view on baptism is probably not, not, <laughs> it's not the most fun thing to talk about when we're just trying to hang out and have a good time. But he says, well, we're wrong to immerse people because um, we, should, we should baptize babies. And he goes off on his paedo baptism. Well, he was a theology student um, at the time. And, uh, and I just had to say to him, hey, hey, look, when you, when you get into the real world, people aren't going to argue about this. Like you're arguing about this with some of us who are in the church, and we're just trying to say we don't want to talk about this, and he just kept on going to argue about it. But uh, I had to say to him, hey, like, what, what, like, why do you want to be right about this right now? Why do you want to talk about this? Why do you want to be certain on this? What, what is there that is that is in you right now where you feel like you have to win the argument right now. Um, and that ended up diffusing things and, and all that. Uh, because those are, that's a piece of our former passions getting in there. Our, our passions of our former ignorance, our, our desire to be 100% certain on this thing or, or to be right. Uh, sometimes it, it's just like our desire to be comfortable, right? Um, to not be action-oriented, right? Those, those are... Those are um, passions of our former ignorance. Uh, but here, once we do a theological triage, we see what's core theology, what's important, and that should fuel uh, that should fuel what we know now so that we move forward in love, which builds up. He goes on, he says, also, 
not just love, he says he's called you, uh, but he who has called you, sorry, is holy. So you also be holy in all your conduct. Guys, that's what I'm talking about here. Like, we're supposed to be different from the rest of the world in our conduct. That's what holiness is. It's being set apart. It's being different. God is wholly different, like W-H-O-L-Y, wholly different, and he's holy. Right? He's wholly different from us, from this world. And so we're called to be that as God is that in this world to show that, hey, we don't have to fight about these things. We can actually have a conversation about these things. And, and so uh, we can look different from the world and we can discuss things, for example, like the Trinity, um, which is core theology, right? And, and guys, here's the thing about the Trinity. Here's the, thing, here's the one thing you need to know about the Trinity if you know nothing else. The Trinity is, and God in his essential character, is incomprehensible. Like God is fully, we cannot fully know God. We can never exhaust the depths of who God is. It's incomprehensible. And if you know that coming into it, you know that you're not trying to get rid of the mystery of who God is so that you can fully know be fully 100% certain, you know, be fully right. You're coming into it with a humility where you are, you are um, submitting yourself before God and saying, God, help me to understand spiritual things because we have the mind of Christ. But at the same time, you're God. You're, I'm never going to fully know you. And that's the beauty of it. And that's, that's the beauty of, of you being God and me not being God. So the doctrine of the Trinity in and of itself is, is incomprehensible. And, and you hear this all, I don't know if you've heard this actually, um, but we try to use analogies to describe the Trinity. You know, like, like for instance, God is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So like for me, I'm a, I'm a son, I'm a father, and I'm a husband. Well, no, it's not the same because that, break, that analogy breaks down really quickly because I'm one person and God is three persons one essence, right? That's the, that's the essential doctrine of the Trinity. One essence and three persons. Not, not one essence manifested as different people, you know, as, as different people. So one person, that sometimes he's Jesus, sometimes he's the Holy Spirit, sometimes he's... No, it's three different, three different persons is, is how it's described in, uh, as the doctrine is formulated in church history. So um, that is... And, and like you could spend the rest of your life contemplating that and still not fully grasp it, still not get it, still not, still not um, fully understand because there's a mystery there. So the Trinity is, um, and guys, all of these doctrines that we've just mentioned and talked about, you could study them for the rest of your life. I, I mean, I took full-on courses in seminary on these things. I've taught full-on courses on, on these things. I've read numerous, numerous books on each of these, these topics, and you'll never even fully exhaust uh, all that you can know about each of these topics. So how do we think we can do that with God? So he says, let's not be conformed to our former passions. Be holy in all our conduct. And in verse 17, he says, if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself. So this is all about right 
practice, orthopraxy, right? It's, it's right theology leads to right practice. Orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Remember, we're in, we're in exile. So conduct yourselves with fear. Seems like, seems odd uh, that he would put that there, but fear in the sense of not, not timidity or, or coward, cowardice, being scared of something, but fear in terms of, of awe, of reverence for who God is. And that's what's key here being so in awe of who God is that we realize, wow, we are just simple created beings who, yes, we have the mind of Christ, we can understand some spiritual things, but we're limited in that still because we're in this flesh. We're in this fleshly, natural body. Now, God's given us the ability to understand the supernatural, but we can't fully do it. So, on this side... Uh, so he says, conduct yourselves with fear. Like, just be in awe and in wonder of who God is, of his majesty, that he's marvelous, that, that, um, that, we, that we have these different uh, theological doctrines and, and things. And, and you know what? That humility makes me say, I could be wrong. I may not be right. And I'd be okay with that. But this, but this is as far as I know right now, based on all that I've, I've studied, I think, I think this is the right direction right now. Um, and, and so that puts us in a posture of humility, of learning, of hearing from others, of hearing from God through others, um, and, and walking forward together in unity, because that is so important, in unity. And guys, I wish the church across Toronto could do that. I wish we could put, a, put away our theological preferences for baptizing babies or, or sprinkling or doing communion this way or that way or listening to that style of music or, or, or worshiping that style of music or, um, you know, name your, name your doctrine off of there. And I wish the church could be unified across the city. I think that's what God's desire is. That's how it started. Why would he not want that for Toronto? If we can only put aside our theological preferences that aren't core, they're not core, right? Um, and so, uh, here's here's the last thing I want to give you that'll help help form you and push you in this direction. It's called a theological pyramid. And uh, as as Missy and Daniel showed earlier, you have this pyramid. Missy was saying it's one of the, the strongest structures, engineering structures. Ever, it's why the pyramids have lasted for 10,000 years, or I don't know, however long it's been. Um, I guess not, maybe 4,000. Um, no, 6,000. Anyways, you can Google it. Um, the pyramids have, la- have been there for a long time, right? And, and they've, they've just stood the test of time. So you have uh, what we're going to talk about right now is a theological pyramid, because oftentimes what you're dealing with isn't a theological pyramid, you're actually playing Jenga with your theology. So you have like, you know, one, you know, when you get to one, you know, in Jenga, when you've taken out the two side things on the, on the bottom, you just have that middle block left and your tower's teetering like that, or you have that even in the middle and your tower's teetering. Like that's, that's a picture of, our, of a lot of people's theology, a lot of Christians' theology. And so I want to build your theological pyramid from the foundation up. So the first... 
the first block there on the bottom, which in a pyramid, right, that's the bigger one. That's the most secure foundation is, is this one on the bottom. It's the, it's the bigger one. So that's the scriptures. Guys, it's, it's the word of God. It's, it's this Bible right here. Uh, that is your foundation. So and there's five doctrines of the scriptures. Uh, there's revelation, there's inspiration, there's perspicuity, there's sufficiency, and there's authority. I'm not going to go through all those right now. Uh, you, can, you can look them up look them up later. I mean, there's been tomes of, of uh, <laughs> just works written on each of those things. But um, those five doctrines make, make that up. So uh, you have the scriptures here. Um, and you don't need to know those five doctrines to read the scriptures, okay? Um, but those five doctrines are, are there as you read the scriptures. So the scriptures. The next level is hermeneutics. That is biblical interpretation. It's the science of interpretation. It's how we interpret the Bible. It's biblical exegesis. It's getting down in here. It's talking about the language. It's looking at the, the grammatical structure. It's looking at, at, at um, yeah, just, I won't go too deep into that. Um, but biblical exegesis and interpretation, it's how you understand the Bible. Okay, so that makes sense so far. Scriptures, hermeneutics. Here's where we miss our foundation. So if there's a Jenga block in here that is just a singular piece, it's often this one. And this is where your theology starts teetering, where a lot of people's theology starts teetering, because biblical theology is the next, is the next tier on the pyramid. And this is what my PhD is in. It's in biblical theology. So I tell people it's just in theology because most people don't know the differences in, in theologies, and then it's just simpler that way because most people don't care and so I just say theology but it's specifically in biblical theology which it traces the meta narrative of the scriptures it, it talks about authorial intent what's the original intent of the author it, it traces themes throughout the scriptures so so um, you know you can trace the theme of the kingdom throughout the scriptures you can trace the, the theme of um, God's justice throughout the scriptures and it majors on context it says context is king, right? And, and so you want to have that as your foundation before you get to the next tier. The next tier is systematic theology. This is topical and, doc, and doctrinal formulations. Most people miss biblical theology, and their next tier is actually systematic theology. Well, or they put systematic theology... And then biblical theology is somewhere above it. Well, if you see that, it's a smaller block. It's like putting a smaller, a bigger block on top of a smaller block, and then you have some teetering as well. Your, your Jenga tower is going to fall. It's going to be shaky. So systematic comes next. Systematic is what most people know about theology. It's Christology, it's ecclesiology, the study of Christ, the study of the church, hamartiology, the study of sin, eschatology, the study of the end times. And so what it does is says, it says, okay, what is the New Testament, for instance, tell us about who Christ is. That's Christology. And then you go to the Bible and you say, oh, well, John 1 does that. And there's four Christological passages. So John 1, the Word made flesh. Uh, Philippians 2, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the, uh, though, though, he's in, uh, though he was God, he, he did not count equality of God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself in the form of a servant, obedient to death even on a cross, right? So that's Philippians 2. You have Colossians 1, that Christ is supreme, that all things are created through him. Uh, and you have all things that are repeated over and over again. So the supremacy of Christ. And Hebrews 1 is, uh, it talks about the radiance of God's glory, 
and and talks about Christ in that way and the Messiah in that way. So these four Christological passages in, in the scriptures inform our Christology and, and we know about Christ. But why? And what do they mean? That's what biblical theology does. See, most of us know some things about these doctrines, ecclesiology, eschatology, um, Christology, theology proper, but the why we've missed. Your whole epistemological foundation, you've missed. You just know the things. And what does knowing the things do? Well, it puffs up. Biblical theology helps you know why that is there. So why is it important that the Word was made flesh? Why is Jesus even called the Word? Why is it even important that he was made flesh? Why is it important that he dwelt among us? What does it mean that he's the radiance of God's glory? Why, what does it mean that he's the perfect image of the invisible God? Like Those things, biblical theology answers. So biblical theology, systematic theology, two more. Historical theology is the next tier. This is how is a doctrine interpreted throughout church history? So you take a belief, okay, the church believes this about creation, okay? How is that interpreted throughout, throughout history? The church believes this about eschatology. How is that interpreted throughout history? So, for instance, when I was growing up in, in, the, in the 90s, it was really, eschatology was really big. And pre-tribulation eschatology, pre-millennial eschatology, rapture was very big, that Jesus would come and save the church before the tribulation, well, if you know historical theology, which most people don't, and if you said, well, how is that interpreted throughout history? You would see that pre-trib, uh, pre-millennial eschatology is brand new in the history of the church. I get just came, it just, it was like a hundred years old, maybe at the time I was growing up. And, and so, and it became this popularized thing because we all want to be saved from the tribulation, but the Bible actually never talks about it that way. And the church throughout history had, had, hadn't talked about it that way. So it talked about us persevering through those times. And, talk, and, and so if you have pre-trib theology, you need two raptures to happen. Um, but the Bible only talks about one. So that's where historical theology really helps. Historical theology also helps when you think of um, social issues as well. Like we had some of those in, in, our theological, in our theological triage. And most people don't know how the church has interpreted these things throughout history. Well, that's where historical theology is so key. And if you lop that off, if you lop off the top of the pyramid, well, you end your pyramid at systematic theology. At just knowing things. And what ends up happening is what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. You just, think you're, you just think you know it, and you don't need to know what anyone else has believed before you because, well, chronologically, you're ahead of them, and so you're smarter, and so now that makes you a snob. Um, and, but historical theology helps put us as the church in context with the church throughout history. And then the top of the pyramid is practical theology. Right theology leads to right practice. And so... If, it, if you're not practicing right, you're missing something in your pyramid. If, if uh, you're causing divisions, well, you're missing something in your pyramid. If what you think about a certain issue, any of those issues on that list or anything else, uh, causes you to be angry at other people in the church or causes you to um, leave a church uh, divisively, well, then um, you're, 
theology is off because it didn't lead to right practice, right? So um, in the household of God, in the family of God, we can actually talk about these things. And so, because if you look at this pyramid, if you look at those doctrines, there's a lot to be uncertain. There's a lot to be uncertain of in here. It's why we should conduct ourselves with gentleness, with respect, with fear. And if we can do that inside the church, if we can do that together inside the church, we can do that outside the church. Because actually a lot of people outside the church aren't even talking about these things. We'll talk about that more as we, as we go forward. But guys, when people outside the church see that we are fighting inside the church, they don't want any part of it. How many times have you seen a fight and you're like, hey, I want to go in there? No, people tend to avoid, avoid those things. So as a church, we want to show unity and grace for differing views. And that's the beauty of Trinity Life is we've majored on the core things. And so we have people in our church who are on, on all ends of the spectrum and in between on different theological issues. Why? Because we're not majoring on the minors. We're majoring on what's core. Now, if you want to talk about the minors, I'm more than happy to talk to you about it. Your R3 leader is more than happy to talk to you about it. And, and we'd love to talk about those things. But we're not going to let them get, away, get in the way of the mission of God to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. And just continue to form us in your image. Continue to form us um, according to your purposes. And may we not be conformed to this world, to, to the passion of the former ignorance, but by the renewal and the transformation of our minds. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay.